You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't Hello, that nice? Everyone, and welcome Let's do to the this. show. Got something a little bit different for you here this week. The show, you might have noticed, is longer than normal because there are not three of us here in the room, but actually four of us for today's show. Yay! Hey! Yes, we do have a guest with us. We have Laura from the For the Love of Nature podcast, who has joined us this week to share one of uh, her strange nature facts with us. So we are excited to have you here. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. We're so excited to have you with us. Um, This is totally uh, right up my alley, as you guys know. For anyone who has listened to our podcast, we love talking about weird, strange stuff. So this was not at all a stretch to find something. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Excellent. You know, uh, we've heard your podcast. Obviously, you've heard your podcast. Some of our listeners have not. Can you tell us a little bit about what your podcast is? Yeah. Um, So uh, the podcast, For the Love of Nature... It's uh, myself and then my co-host Katie. Um, We kind of call it a comedy nature podcast. It's all factual, at least for the most part. Sometimes we have to make corrections. (laughs) Um, But it is intended to be factual information presented um, in an interesting and funny way. Uh, And our goal is for people to listen to it and then leave caring about nature a little bit more than they did when they started. Um, We think that we usually have people who are what we call nature novices listen um, so people who are just kind of wanting to feel out things, wanting to know more, um, but we have a range of audience members from our eight-year-old fan club, um, to our <laughs> nature experts. It's <laughs> precious. What's like a, a good starter episode for someone to dive in and learn about it? Oh man. Um, well, no, no, it's okay. Uh, we, we go back and forth between like really sciencey and then just ridiculous. Um, so if you want like good, intense science, um, the trees know is a good one. That's about plant sentience. And then if you want ridiculous, um, probably could you ride that where Katie and I talk about different (laughs) animals that we've always wanted to ride and the logistics of doing so. Amazing. I've always wanted to ride like a a giant St. Bernard. I know I can't and that would hurt the dog. Yeah. No, so yeah, wild. and we had some rules first, of course. Um, but yeah, I've always wanted to ride a polar bear. That's my number one. Nice. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. This is my first time being a guest star on anybody else's podcast. So, excellent. Okay. Well, we do appreciate it. Uh, I'm gonna get things kicked off here. Uh, you know, as we've alluded to many times on the show, uh, each of us maintains a list of topics we'd like to talk about on future shows. Uh, we keep the list secret because we want to surprise each other. I know I'm constantly adding topics to my list because I'm constantly reading interesting things in books, magazines, uh, research papers, news articles, and such. But once in a while, people also send me ideas. Oh, absolutely. Those are the nice. best ones. Now, numerous people uh, have sent me today's topic. <gasps> I know what it is. <laughs> I know what it is. Uh, and they all said something along the lines of, well, this seems right up your alley. 
or even, I can't believe you haven't talked about this yet. (laughs) (laughs) One of my co-hosts even forwarded me a version of this story, which is kind of fun. Of course. Yeah, I think it was me, Kirk, and it was forwarded to me by a listener who is a friend of mine. (laughs) Now, naturally, uh, this story involves birds. I'm kind of a bird freak, but it also involves migration. Uh, and it is strange, so it pretty much checks all of my boxes. Uh, and yes, I, I did hear about this like literally months ago, but the reason I haven't covered it until today is actually because it's so weird and unbelievable that I wanted to make sure that I not only understood it properly, but that I could even explain it to other people. Fair enough. So here goes. Uh, now, I've talked about migration and birds many times on the show. I think migration is utterly fascinating and strange. Uh, and it is so often, I find that it's misunderstood, or simply perhaps I should say it's not understood. And so we use this bogus term instinct. And I really don't like that word. At least, I don't like the way that it is often used, right? Because okay. uh, I think all too often, instinct becomes a shorthand for, well... We don't know. They must just know, yeah. Yeah, it's like something that's just ingrained in like your DNA or your makeup or whatever that you're supposed to just know. You just know. You don't it's right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, there are things that are instinctual. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right? For example, uh, when your hand is cold at night, you might tuck it under your leg. No one taught you to do that. All the time. Right. Yeah. You didn't make a conscious decision to do it. It's just instinctual. Yeah. Or like mm-hmm. I, I've recently had a baby and just seeing all the stuff that she already knows how to do, like all the reflexes, it's crazy. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I think we ascribe this word instinct to a lot of migration that isn't instinctual at all. I, I think mm-hmm. the to be clear, the urge to migrate is instinctual. No one tells a bird to do it. However, the methods they use are something we can endeavor to understand. I I talked about how uh, birds migrate at night by using stars, right? Mm, So cool. That was really cool. Well, I mean, it is instinctual to use the stars, but too often, instead of trying to understand the mechanics of how birds migrate using things like stars, we simply shrug and think that they are migrating by instinct instead of because of instinct. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. That's a good breakdown, yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to today's story and what I'm going to call a potential discovery. And I'll come back to why I use the word potential uh, in a moment. (laughs) Oh, good. So uh, it's been known for a pretty long time that birds seem to have some sort of internal compass, right? Yeah. Homing pigeons can lose their way if they fly over certain areas with high iron content in the ground. Uh, they also get lost if you simply, like, glue or strap a magnet to their head, which is... <laughs> oh, poor pigeons. What, why would yeah. you... Sad. Why would you do a magnet or strap a magnet to a pigeon? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I mean, if you think that uh, birds are using, say, a magnetic field or ma- sensing the magnetism somehow, you need to put a stronger magnetic field by their head and see if that messes with their internal compass just like it would on, like, a, a hand compass you would use. Okay. So you set it on yeah. their head but and see But process of elimination, it's, yeah, yeah, it's the only exactly. way to know. Ah, uh, fine. So the point is that we've known for a long time that birds have some sort of sense of magnetism. Uh, there's been debate as to, like, how 
like what that mechanism is. And some researchers speculated that they literally had yeah, yeah. some kind of like mm-hmm. ferromagnetic internal compass, literally iron in their bodies. Uh, there is naturally iron in all of our bodies. Uh, and they speculated that it was somehow mysteriously affected by the Earth's magnetic field and that somehow equally mysteriously uh, the birds could just feel or sense the field. That'd be cool. Very cool, but yeah. It'd be so. How would that even be possible like to be able to it's not yeah yeah the mechanism is always the difficult part yeah we don't we don't know right exactly the mechanism is the hard part so there was another line of reasoning that perhaps the birds could actually see the magnetic Mm -hmm. field of the earth so if this was the case it would be amazing for migration uh we're not sure what it would look like but even if you could just picture like cartoonish longitudinal lines superimposed (laughs) on the earth uh, you can see it might be like see, would... I bet it's like seeing like the uh, like the aurora because oh. isn't that made with like electricity like it's like it has it's... to do with the magnetic yeah I mean it's related it has to do with the solar wind and charged particles and whatnot but I mean it 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 does somewhat follow those magnetic lines so again we don't know what it would look like right but it's sort of that idea that maybe they can see something that we can't yeah. see and if they can see something that we can't yeah. see that would be hugely helpful for navigation. Well, uh, we now think the latter explanation, the one about the eyes, may actually be the right answer. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Scientists have identified uh, a protein, actually, uh, in birds' eyes called cryptochrome 4. And scientists were able to show recently that cryptochrome 4 from the eyes of European robins is sensitive to magnetic fields when the cryptochrome has been hit with blue light. Now, weirdly... When they tried that experiment on cryptochromes from non-migratory species, Mm -hmm. such as chickens, there was no change from the magnetic field. This would suggest that there may be something to the cryptochromes uh, being somehow different in migratory birds. And we can speculate that perhaps some migratory birds can sense that that, uh, that magnetism is affecting the cryptochromes (laughs) in their eyes. And again, perhaps birds can thus, in some sense, actually see the magnetic field of the Earth. Right. And that's, that's why I'm calling this a potential discovery. Uh, it is interesting and curious, but I'm not yet totally convinced that we have all of the evidence. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, that's really cool, but also the, the change in uh, subjects. A European robin, which is kind of like a, a warbler for the North American listeners, Kinda. Like the size and like, like kind of like a little, it's a bird. Cute little chubby. Sure. A little chubber. Yeah, it's a little sure. chubber. Does not look like our robins. Nope. And a chicken. No. <laughs> just the size difference is just, yeah. uh. I mean, the vision right. th- thing though makes a lot of sense because I know that, I mean, birds can see UV. So, so they've already got a lot mm-hmm. on us as far as vision. So it would make sense that right. perhaps there's even more to it. Sure. Well, and Rachel, the point of it being a chicken, too, is that, of course, chickens are non-migratory. And so the fact that we see this with the cryptochromes from the robin's eyes, which are migratory and don't see the reaction from the, from the magnetic field in the mm-hmm. chickens, that points to the fact that maybe this does have something to do with migration. And that's sort of one of the, the pieces of evidence, if you will. Now, the story does get weirder. Uh, there's, there's more weirdness going on. Uh, what really made the headlines wasn't that maybe birds can see magnetic fields. Uh, it wasn't that maybe we have found the molecule responsible, but rather the proposed mechanism for the molecule working. 
is what made the headlines. So here we go. Researchers propose that CryptoChrome 4 allows birds to see magnetic fields using quantum entanglement. What? 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 <laughs> okay, we brought physics into this now. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. Oh, and oh, man. So this is part of why I didn't want to do this story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you shot yourself in the foot there. Yeah. Nice job. Uh, how, I, how many hours of research did you do for this episode? Kirk? Uh, a lot, <laughs> a lot. So I, I, I now need to explain quantum entanglement uh, <laughs> and it's an incredibly deep rabbit hole to go down. Uh, so I'm going to try to give like the super basic version. All right. Of what's what's happening uh, in this experiment. So when blue light hits the protein, it affects electrons. And what happens is that you get pairs of electrons that are entangled at the quantum level. Now, uh, this pair is in something called superposition. Uh, basically, these two electrons will always be spinning in the same direction. Uh, the direction they're spinning isn't important or even in one sense knowable. But what is important is that because they are now linked up uh, or quantum entangled, these two electrons will always be spinning in the same direction as each other, even when they become separated. And uh, that spin direction, I should point out, is essentially random. However, uh, when there is a magnetic field present, it can affect the probability of which direction the paired electrons end up spinning. So this quantum superposition appears and disappears extremely quickly, but it can ultimately affect the arrangement of the protein and perhaps even be detected by the bird. Okay. So I know this seems pretty uh, out there and uh, like a lot of speculation, like, well, maybe they see something, but the evidence actually is mounting. So in another study, scientists tested European robins again, and they tested their ability to sense direction, which they could do, uh, but then they then repeated the experiment, exposing the birds to an extremely weak magnetic source okay so that was the only variable that was changed in the experiment yeah and when they did this they exposed them to that extremely weak magnetic field i should point out that magnetic field was so weak it could only have affected uh something on the quantum level this wasn't like a big magnet they stuck next to their head gotcha okay okay so when they flipped on the magnetic field ta-da the birds could no longer okay. have their sense of direction. They couldn't tell which way to go. Oh, wow. So that implies that that extremely weak magnetic field, which could have only affected, you know, quantum entangled particles, Whoa. Uh -huh. caused the birds to lose their sense of direction, which seems like pretty good evidence. Yeah. So it must, like, that It really just, I mean... If you take away nothing else, it's that they're mm -hmm. so incredibly sensitive. Like it's like fine tuned to the max. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Now, why am I so skeptical? Uh, as interesting as all this is, these were experiments performed on a single molecule or on single molecules that were no longer in retina. Mm. This is very preliminary research, and we are far from understanding how the actual proteins perform in an actual eye. It is entirely possible. This is a weird effect scientists are seeing, uh, and it has absolutely nothing to oh. do with bird vision and migration. But like I talked about, the clues are adding up and more research is being done. 
So it'll be really fascinating to see if this does bear out in the future. We usually say that quantum mechanics is fascinating, but has no real world effect on giant meat puppets such as ourselves. <laughs> uh, but interestingly, this research would seem to contradict that and show that for some birds, maybe, just maybe, quantum effects in their eyes are actually allowing them to see the magnetic fields of the Earth. Yeah, crazy. it's amazing. I have a feeling this is one of those subjects that uh, we'll be re revisiting at some point. Like, we'll loop back around to it because, uh, you know, time will tell on this one, I guess, if this bears out and becomes something that uh, we know to be true or if it was just uh, a weird quirk and a bunch of coincidences and someone figures out, oh, no, it was actually something else going on. But uh, really cool, really cool new science coming out. Tell you what, we're going to go to a break. And I'm going to come back. We'll have some more Strange by Nature for everybody. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature see you soon hey we're back everybody and it is my turn okay um so uh i was trying to think okay what weird topics what do i like what have you guys already mm -hmm. covered um and this topic came up a few times in our own podcast but we've never talked about it extensively and i was like perfect now's the time so I'm going to be discussing how most of us grew up fearing that death by quicksand was an absolute possibility, <laughs> thanks to movies like The Jungle Book, The Princess Brides with Family Robinson. Right. But it's not that deadly. Unfor um, disappointingly, maybe. Um, <laughs> oh, but uh, so I, 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 it I keeps so coming prepared. up too, like on other things. I know, just... especially because as a kid, I was really into like worst case scenario survival guides. Right. And I had down like how I was going to survive quicksand because it was going to happen I mean, eventually. There was oh, a yeah, whole absolutely. Mythbusters episode about it. Yeah. Yeah. So Rachel actually talked about quicksand in one of our previous episodes. I, I did. Yes. But I'm sure Aha. you have all new information. So yes. that's cool. I want to know more about quicksand. Let's learn more. Okay, okay. Well, I'm so terribly sorry. I didn't know that you already covered some of it. Hopefully, I'll totally cover fine. some different aspects. Yeah. I was more... I, I think when I talked about it, I was more talking about the Alaskan mud mud flats. Um, gotcha. The differences there in between that and quicksand where it actually is nervous. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Let's, uh, let's hear what you came up with. I'm sure it will be a totally different take. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about um, like what is it? How does it form? Like the the quicksand one hundred and one. Mm -hmm. Um, so hopefully, Rachel, I'm not gonna repeat too much of what you said. You're fine, honestly. Um, I don't. We don't talk about this much, and I don't know about the rest of you. But as soon as I have recorded what we have, whatever my topic is, mm -hmm. most of that knowledge just exits my brain <laughs> so i do not like remember what so i yeah. yeah i i hope you retain something i retain yeah. bits of it 
Yeah. Just I, enough for trivia night. Exactly. I pretty quickly forget right. some of our topics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, as I was uh, researching more about quicksand, because I knew like some of the basics, but I was dying laughing because so it wasn't just, you know, our generation that has thought that quicksand was a scary thing. Quicksand hit its peak in movies in the 1960s. Really? Mm-hmm. One in 35 movies had quicksand in it. Wow. That's so many movies with quicksand. I know. Like, yeah. it was, like, if you, I'm sure if you grew up as a kid in the 60s, you were like, it is definitely going to happen. <laughs> oh, Lawrence like, of I'm going to walk out. Lawrence of Arabia is my favorite movie yes. that has quicksand. It was mentioned, yeah. yeah. Uh, mine was, my. Well, the films that are being made more recently when we were growing up were made by people mm-hmm. who were watching those older films. Yes, yes. Well, right. Or like the Swiss Family Robinson was definitely around then. And mm-hmm. Princess Bride was like a spoof Huge. of, you know, that. Uh-huh. Um, but the really scarring one for me was the live action Jungle Book from 1994, which very few people Ooh, have seen. I've oh, seen I have that not one. seen that. No, I never have. saw that one. So yep. good. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. But in that, a guy dies in quicksand. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I, it was horrifying because of the thought of, <laughs> yeah, slowly suffocating or mm-hmm. drowning just as like, oh my gosh. And you're done. Not great. Yeah. Um, so turns out quicksand isn't as dangerous as Hollywood would like us to believe. So quicksand is Darn. really just a soupy mixture of sand, clay, silt, and salt. Um, almost always salt is a factor. Rarely hmm. is it huh. not. Um, something about the viscosity, how it changes it, um, that becomes really, really saturated. And it makes it a non-Newtonian fluid. So Ooh, also bringing in like some ketchup. physics-y stuff here. So like, um, like slime? Exactly, no, 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 like ketchup or ke- like... Why ketchup? <laughs> yes, ketchup, Rachel. <laughs> no, why is that a non-Newtonian fluid? Because when you shake it, it becomes more liquid. Thanks to ketchup. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you hit the 57. Liquefies upon spanking? I feel like there's something... <laughs> um, there's a t-shirt um, in that, so, yeah. Uh. (laughs) so non-newtonian fluid meaning that it does not follow newton's viscosity laws Mm -hmm. so it just doesn't act like it should um so as soon as something with mass is set on top of it it liquefies it its viscosity rapidly drops Mm -hmm. um so this happens one of two ways either an underground water source with the water like percolating up through the sand it's kind of Mm -hmm. pushing the sand apart making it so there's no friction in between anything. Right. Kind of like like maybe um, an aquifer or something? Or like a spring? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or, or or right, like even on the edge, any kind of underground, even from like seeping from a river on the banks kind okay. of action mm-hmm. even. Um, and then the other way is vibrations, typically from earthquakes. So the earth is just like, it's getting shook up so much, the water is being kind of pressed a little bit at a time and liquefies, oh, which is how a lot of buildings collapse during earthquakes. So it actually on. turns the base into quicksand. You're yes. not only dealing with an earthquake that you right. can't tell is coming, but maybe you take two steps and all of a sudden you're in quicksand. <laughs> right. So and and it's so it might not be detriment to humans, but right. buildings. It is not good. <laughs> buildings have to worry about quicksand. That just reminds me. Have you seen Mark Rober's video? Yes. I actually do mention him at the very end because it's okay, one of the okay. coolest videos. Um, so though that's kind of how quicksand happens. What happens when you fall in? Um, well, unlike in the movies, you 
do not get sucked down and oh. drowned. Um, Disappointing. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, in the movies, in or, the movies, or a relief. I mean, right. if I'm gonna experience quicksand, I want to like feel the fear that has been instilled in me at least a little bit. Wow. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right because in the movies it makes it seem like it's feet 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 deep well most of the spots really aren't that deep to begin with but not only that um the main reason why you're not going to sink down is because you are less dense than quicksand there it is um so you float Mm -hmm. uh which seems really weird and like would be a fun kind of experiment to try like floating on sand because it would feel very like just different i mean you do float on sand whenever you lay on it yeah true uh, I, true wow yeah uh so humans have a density of 62 pounds per cubic foot and quicksand is 125 so it's double our weight so the sand is mostly going to sink you're mostly going to float mm-hmm. um and they've done experiments with this with like aluminum um like little round balls that they can change densities make them more like a human less like a human and like try all different experiments with them and almost without um Fail? What I want to say with yeah, without fail, they almost always float, um, or go back up after a few minutes. Huh. Well, the word "almost" is the key yeah. word. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be included in that "almost" part. Right. <laughs> Maybe just so, a little. Yeah, <laughs> wow. uh, that says that you know, struggling in the movies. You know, people are the more you struggle, the more you get sucked down. Right, right. Struggling would definitely make you get more stuck. Um, but it wouldn't cause you to go down more. Gotcha. Um, so when you sink into the wet sand, it's a lot like being in concrete. Uh, and it creates a vacuum. This happened to me once, not in quicksand, but in mud. I remember when I was a lot oh, younger. Yeah. Oh, I've lost. Shoes. And being mm-hmm. real freaked out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it creates such an intense vacuum down there mm-hmm. that to, to break free of that. Mm-hmm. It takes 100,000 newtons of force, which is the same strength that you would need to lift a medium-sized car. Oh, <laughs> whoa. So, I'm good, yeah, <laughs> good luck getting your foot out. Not happening. Yeah. Um, so the only way to get out of quicksand is to wiggle your appendages. Like, say your foot gets stuck, you're supposed to, like, wiggle it in a round motion. Sure. So that water starts to seep in to lessen the vacuum. Kind of like in, um, a, in an avalanche, you're supposed to like wiggle to pack the snow in. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah, because it's starting to pocket. press the sand too. Yeah. So you're creating a water pocket in right. this quicksand. Okay. Um, and then you're supposed to move very slowly because the more slowly you move, the less of a vacuum is created. And lean backwards so you're not floating face down. Um, <laughs> and that Solid you do advice. start to become more buoyant to go towards the surface. Yeah. So just, um, you know, relax into the embrace of the quicksand. Exactly. It sounds very <laughs> counterintuitive, mm-hmm. but just relax. Not alarming at all. Well, <laughs> like, I, I wonder, you hear about people, like, one of the places you find quicksand is in tidal flats. So I suppose if you were to lay back, once the tide yes. came in, mm-hmm. it would sort of, like, start to rehydrate the, the, the sand and sort of change. I guess you'd kind of start to float even more then. But, man, that would be... A pretty terrifying weight as the water came yes, in. Yes, and that is the reason. So in the the bleak aspect of quicksand, so although you may not get sucked down into quicksand and, like, suffocate on that, 
the way that people do die from quicksand is usually either exposure or drowning when the tide comes in. Mm. Right. Because you are going to encounter quicksand in wetlands, um, in marshes, shorelines, riverbanks, so where there's already going to be a lot of other water. So your risk of drowning in the actual water is high, not in the quicksand itself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to add to my list of ways that we probably won't die in Minnesota, uh, tidal quicksand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Perfect. I did have a kid s- sacrifice his shoe to the marsh once. Oh, we all been there. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I, I had a kid who uh, stepped into some mud and their shoe just vanished, never to be seen again. And we dug and dug at the whole area and it was never found. They'll be fossilized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or they'll be like those that. bog people. Oh, sure. <gasps> Yes. Hands and everything. Yeah, which is another bog really shoes. Cool. Future yeah. topic. Yeah. <laughs> bog shoes are something that could different. Be a band but yeah, I listen um, to that. So, quicksand can be avoided um, easily if you poke the ground in front of you. If you're walking in a wetland with a stick, that's what they suggest. Or and not weirdly enough, don't wear shoes if you're walking in an area that there is potential quicksand. I guess to lessen your chances of getting stuck. I guess. Um, But I'm sure that, you know, if if I'm walking in a wetland where there might be quicksand, I'm probably also worried about a couple of other things that are living in a wetland too that I would want shoes for. Even just broken glass. (laughs) Right. Alligators. Like (laughs) venomous snakes. (laughs) Yep. Right. no. I will say, so, though, it makes sense about, oh, yeah, broken glass. It makes sense, though, yeah. about uh, the, about not wearing shoes, though, because, like, as, like, we've touched on it, but I've definitely gotten my shoe stuck in a, in the marsh, just in, you know, Minnesota, and I could get my foot out, but I had to but not the dig shoe. Yeah. for the shoe. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems weird, though, that, like, you can get your sh- your foot out, but your shoe can't come out. Like, somehow, well, the, those, they're different, right? Well, also, the... Yeah, it says your foot's not vacuumed. The shoe is vacuumed. Right. Yeah. Also, like, the texture is different. Your foot is generally fairly smooth, whereas shoes tend to be a lot more textured and has more surface area yeah. for them to... Always get a pedicure before going to I would guess, though... <laughs> Uh, yeah my foot is pretty textured um i would guess though that uh, you know correct me if if you read something else laura but i would guess that the reason they suggest not wearing shoes is that your your feet are very sensitive and have nerves and if you start to step on an area that is starting to suck your foot down you're gonna sense it Hmm. i think that's what it is um because they were showing there are some like there was a video of a man who was walking on the beach and you could see him walking on top of the quicksand right before it changed it was like looks like he was walking on a waterbed um so yeah if you could feel that shift in your feet it might give you the split second to pull back um i think shoes or no if you feel the earth uh jiggling under your feet you know, <laughs> that's nature so telling you, hey. Yeah, that's a that's a big warning right there. The Earth's not supposed to like wave under your feet like a waterbed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. nature. You telling might want to take a step stop. back. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's that's the quicksand as we know it. In my digging though for quicksand, I also encountered dry quicksand, which oh, is okay. far scarier than wet quicksand. 
Um, okay. So we don't have to worry really about wet quicksand. It's a myth. Dry quicksand, that is what you, you absolutely do need to worry about. You will probably suffocate and die in, in dry quicksand. Oh, lovely. Um, <laughs> it's when air is blown through the sand and it's so light and fluffy that the sand particles can barely hold their own weight, much uh-huh. less anything else. Anything that is dropped into it will immediately sink. There's no slow sinking. It's like ploop into water wow. um, and it sinks straight to the bottom. Oh, I don't like that. And so that. that would be like more probably of what was in Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. like with the dry sand. That sounds more so, like the the sand in Princess Bride too. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I will reiterate that these are both, well, Lawrence of Arabia is based on fact, but I think the, right. the quicksand incident is not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that, and that brings up a good point. So although there are rumors of things like this happening in the desert, um, caravans disappearing, animals going under, mm-hmm. dry quicksand has never been found in nature so far. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, so okay. although it is terrifying, thank goodness no one's encountered it yet. Although it is possible, it's only been created in a lab so far or in by mechanical means. And yeah. It, so this is where Kirk was talking about Mark there. Rober. Oh yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. It can but stay in um, if you see, if you see Mark Rober's video, he, uh, he's a really cool engineer, like uh, inventor. And he created a hot tub full of sand <laughs> that he turns into dry quicksand and his nephews are playing in it. And it looks like they're jumping into water, they're but swimming. it's sand. Yeah. It's so cool. Wow. And like the second he turns off the mechanism, it, Becomes solid. a solid. Yeah, totally yeah. solid. It's it's yeah. mind-boggling. You, if you haven't seen it, definitely do check it out. Yeah, it's very cool. So have um, the people who've done experiments creating dry quicksand come up with any places on Earth that it could potentially occur in nature? Or is it just kind of not I think their, really their theory is that possibly it could happen in the desert with certain sandstorms, depending on the wind currents. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it almost, when they do it in the lab, it almost creates like a vortex, um, like a tornado. So I suppose if there was a tornado in the desert, possibly. But I think that things would have to be just right. Okay. In, in Mark's video, he has like a PVC pipes with holes under in it. Under the sand. Yeah, yeah, under the sand, it's blowing air up. Uh, mm-hmm. through that yeah. and i just don't see that that's really going to happen in nature I mean, yeah yeah no not unless you're right it'd have to be yeah. like some like, kind of like like a hydro like a vent like some kind of weird vent under the sand with air yeah yeah it's very weird or with carbon dioxide bubbling up from somewhere mm-hmm. maybe yeah <laughs> thank goodness because that sounds real scary um I'm, I mean... it's a lot like uh like farmers have to worry about grain engulfment, which is oh, okay. essentially like quicksand, oh, that's yeah. like falling thing. into a yeah. silo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, silo and and silo. I went to it's school in an ag same. school. They talked a lot about silos and getting trapped in the grain. Yeah, it's it's pretty much like the it's our it's a type of quicksand essentially. It's just not liquid. It's it's grain. Right. Huh. So that's quicksand and how we don't have to worry about it as much as possible. But Yay. I just love how weird and strange it is that it's this non-Newtonian substance that doesn't follow rules, but that thankfully we don't have to worry about too much. That's that's fascinating. Goodness. Cool Thank topic. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Cool. Thanks so much for sharing all that uh, information with us. We are going to go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, it will be Rachel's turn to share some facts with us. 
All right, welcome back, everyone. I am really excited about this particular uh, topic this week, um, particularly because it, it it feels timely uh, with the weather outside being, you know, a little frightful. Oh boy. Um, yeah, where we are. Uh, so I wanted to talk to all of you about an animal. It's called it, the Latin is Lithobates sylvaticus, right. or the, or also Raina sylvaticus. Oh, I got, I know it, I know it, I know it. What is it, Laura? <laughs> it is the wood frog. It is the wood frog. Yay, Latin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also very proud. Laura, I don't know if you have heard enough of our podcast, but I generally struggle with the Latin, and I <laughs> I got that. Yeah, week, no, so. that was good. Yes. Good job. <laughs> Um, you you oh should God. hear Kate. Don't Ra- Rachel. If you want to feel good about yourself, please listen to ours more and listen to Katie. Oh, it, I will. It's wow. <laughs> I try so hard. I practice, and then it gets to a- recording time, and it's the worst. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so this week I'm talking about the wood frog. Now Love it may them. not seem like the most amazing or strange creature. But looks can be deceiving. Yes. Um, I mean, all of us are naturalists, so we might actually know why they're so strange. But so to get into it a little bit, the wood frog, to describe it to everybody else, um, it is a small, medium-sized frog uh, in the true frog family, about 2 to 2.8 inches in length. Uh, females tend to be larger than males. Uh, they can, I guess they can also get up to like three and a quarter inches oh. in length, depending. Females That's are big. larger than males. Yeah, it's a large one. Yeah. Um, their general body shape is, uh, a frog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well described. A tri- like triangle, a triangle with legs. Triangle it, with legs. Pretty much. A triangle with legs with larger back legs and smaller front ones. Uh, their general body, uh, coloration tends to be shades of brown or tan, but they can also be shades of red, green, or gray. Uh, the females tend to be more brightly colored. One of the ways you can tell that it's a wood frog is by a black marking across its eyes. It kind of looks like, um, it went a little overzealous on the eyeliner and just, tried to do a cat eye and just went way too far um (laughs) or some people say like a mask but what makes it it, or you know it looks like a mask depending on which way you want to go i like mine better um but they're really fascinating because wood frogs are found throughout the united states through anywhere from georgia all the way up and this is one of the cool strange things about them all the way up through the forests of Alaska and the Northeast. They are the mm. only frogs that live north of the Arctic Circle. Yeah, oh, so okay. cool. Wow. Yeah, which is insane. That's It's quite a range. I didn't realize that they went so far north. That's mm-hmm. very impressive. Yeah, they have smaller numbers in like Alabama and more west into like Idaho. Yeah, um, I uh, when I worked in sorry. Arkansas for a little bit, their range was just shifting through Arkansas because of 
of climate change. They mm-hmm. can't be found in southern Arkansas anymore, only in northern Arkansas. Mm. I mean, uh, it makes sense. They like it cold. To me. They do. They. Oh, we'll get into it. <laughs> oh. We're going to talk about it. Um, so not only are they the only frogs that live north of the Arctic Circle, but one of the reasons why biologists are super interested in wood frogs more recently, um, I'll get into the main reason in a little while, but it also has a huge, uh, abil- it has a, a, how do I say this? It has an ability to have a lot of different types of habitats like it lives in places that you wouldn't ex- you wouldn't expect to see the same type of frog uh like right. you can find it in peat bogs you can find it in vernal pools um which is and in ephemeral wetlands uh which is where they tend to lay their eggs uh, and be little tadpoles they can be in uplands just huge just range. generalists. Yeah. They're so general. And biologists are just astounded by just the sheer range that they have. But the biggest thing that I wanted to talk about is that they have been proposed to be the official state amphibian of New York. That's the biggest thing you want to talk about? No, it's not. But it was fun. <laughs> no, the biggest thing. <laughs> Yay for New York. No. Woo. No, that's not the biggest thing. I was trying to make a joke. Um, (laughs) The biggest thing is, so these are the only frogs that, and these are one of the only, like, remember, frogs are amphibians and they are ectothermic. So they're, to use the word everybody else uses, Laura, yep, cold-blooded. So... What's really interesting is in the winter, to adapt to all of the different cold climates, they are able to be underneath the leaf litter and they, their bodies freeze. Little frogsicles. Little frogsicles. Now, during this time, what happens is, uh, because of how cold it is, up to 65 or so percent of their body literally freezes um but the frogs are able to produce a special antifreeze um in reality it's just a version of glucose it's called glycogen and it just makes all of the liquid in their body a little more syrupy uh to prevent ice forming from inside of their cells if so a sugary were, frogsicle. It's a sugary frogsicle. <laughs> yeah, that's the best kind. Sounds delicious. Right? Sounds amazing. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. It sounds like you're implying that you have tried it if you can't recommend it. You can't prove anything, Kurt. Okay. Wasn't there actually a frog like wasn't there a frog popsicle that you could get from the ice cream trucks? If not, there absolutely needs uh-huh. to be. There should wow. be. There should be. Uh, There's a SpongeBob. <laughs> that's not the same. I mean, there's also a Spider-Man. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. So what they do is they burrow underneath the leaves that fell the previous fall. They uh, fill their bodies with this glycogen, 
And it's a type of antifreeze, and it keeps the liquids inside of their cells from freezing. But it does not prevent the spaces in between their cells from freezing. So that means that they stop breathing, their heart stops beating, but they're still alive throughout yes. the winter. Just yeah, which is so crazy. Mind blowing. Like they're dead, but not they're dead. They're dead, but they're not. Right. And it's one of those, uh, and like their fertilized eggs are not harmed by freezing either. So if they lay eggs before oh, I didn't the know winter, that. their eggs won't be harmed by freezing temperatures hmm. either. Oh. They are able to handle that. I guess an egg is just a big cell. So yeah. it sort of makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so what happens is they have the glycogen and once it, it prevents the ice from forming inside of the cell. And then once temperatures start rising again, the ice, as it does in springtime, it melts and it melts within the frog. But it, what's really fascinating, and we're still not 100% sure how they do this, but the frog thaws from the inside out. Yeah, it's like I was reading about that. Something about, like, they don't know. We how don't the know body how it does how that. Do it. Yeah. yeah, because they're ectothermic they get their body heat from outside of themselves so you would think that it would be they would thaw from the outside in but if they did that that would burst their cells and they would die so they are actually thawing themselves out from the inside out which we have no idea science has no idea how they're able to do that um and they're able to do that well before uh the hibern- their hibernating neighbors are able or like have come out of hibernation or anything. Mm-hmm. So they're given a type of head start um, because they're able to have a pick of whatever sites, whatever vernal pools to lay their eggs. And there won't be necessarily anything that's going to um, eat them um, or eat their eggs rather. Um, and it just, and just to like reiterate, it, not only does the um, the heart beat stop and they stop breathing, but brain activity also ceases, wow. and his body is just more dead. or less frozen. Yeah. It's wow. clinically dead. And the fact that the heart just like restarts starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it just amazing. Whew, it's truly phenomenal, and it's they do this year after year. Um, I think this does have a little bit, and this is just me talking, not necessarily what science says, but <laughs> they wood frogs generally live about three years. And okay. I wouldn't, I would expect that having to freeze yourself, produce the glycogen, thaw yourself out, and doing that multiple times, I feel like that would take a toll and like I have some imagine, sort of yeah. effect on your lifespan so i'm not surprised that they have such a low um time or like time short lifespan, lifespan is yeah. the word i was like yeah <laughs> um short lifespan um and the thing is they're able so they're able to freeze solid for up to eight months each year can you imagine like only four months of your life you're even alive oh. just nuts i mean a great nap Right. I was like, well, very restful. During the pandemic, I kind of wish I could be the wood frog. Right. Um, that would be but... really nice. Yeah. 
So yeah, they're able to, uh, they thought in the spring, what happens is they thaw from the inside outward, their heart starts beating first and then their brain activates and then their legs begin to move. Um, and we still, obviously, like I said, we don't know what starts the heart after being frozen. Um, the craziest thing, too, is uh, I said that they're the only frog that's been found in the Arctic Circle. Just to give you a little more, um, little more on that is they not only uh, are in the Arctic Circle, but they were they're found in Alaska's record temperature like lowest temperature ever set, which was, oh gosh, what was it? I think it, let me look at this here for a second. Minus a lot of degrees. Minus so many degrees. Um, It was, ah, there it is. It was minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, I suppose once you're frozen, you're frozen. You're not going to get more frozen. That's what I was going to say. It doesn't matter how cold. Right. Um, The other cool thing about wood frogs that I want to touch on with all of you is they scientists have found that they're able to tell uh, whether or not a frog is their sibling or not. They can tell oh, the, cool. the tadpoles are able to identify like, Oh, Hey, you're uh-huh. a sibling of mine. Sweet. And siblings will seek each other out and they'll group together. Oh, that's cute. So Very cool. They're the best species to recognize their family. It's fun. There's so a video of, the, of them thawing you can find online. It's really cool. Absolutely go and check that out. <laughs> and uh, what was I going to say? Oh, wouldn't it be cool? I mean, if if we if scientists could figure out, like, exactly the whole glycogen thing, like, imagine, mm-hmm. like, cryogenic possibilities for humans. They're working on that. Oh, again. yeah. Yeah. I mean, these conditions regularly, uh, like, these would kill most other animals. Yeah. Yeah. It's just how it works. And it doesn't. But like so. we could like, you know, freeze ourselves to go to Mars or freeze yourself and then find a cure for a disease that you had later or mm-hmm. like, whoa. It's just nuts. Be wild. Oh. All right. Well, that's what that's I have for one. you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. All right, we're back. This week I am last but not least. And yeah. I want to I want to tell you about uh John Gould. He is a Who? Yeah, he's a PhD candidate in animal behavior. That's the name. Okay, okay. Uh probably not the John Gould you're thinking of. He's we'll a see. yeah. We'll see. He's at Newcastle University in Australia and he specializes in amphibians. Uh um, hey. hey. Yeah, Australia and amphibians. But this actually, uh, my topic is not about amphibians at all. I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling it. Oh, not those kinds of amphibians. Uh, the amphibians okay. are just—you'll see where we're going. Okay. So okay. what? One evening, Let it happen. One evening, he was <laughs> out in the field. He was peering at tadpoles in ephemeral pools, as like you do. amphibian behaviorists are wont to do exactly. Um, so so mm-hmm. he was observing these tadpoles, but he also noticed something unusual about a small beetle in the water. The beetle was okay. the beetle was upside down. So at first he thought it it had just fallen into the pool, 
But then... Is it not like a back swimmer? No, it wasn't a back swimmer. Uh, okay. he, then he realized that the beetle was actually walking upside down what? on the underside of the water. Yeah. Dude. Very so cool. Yo, what? Yes. What? Walking on the bottom so instead of the water. Of... Like... On the underside of the surface. I mean, I've heard of insects like yeah, using water tension on top, <laughs> but yeah. under underneath? Uh-huh. Yeah, yes. and I've heard of like, right, like the back swimmer, a water boatman, but not right. walking. Yeah, so most people, Rachel, you, you alluded to water striders. There's the little insects that can kind of skate around yeah. on the surface of still water. Uh, and there are several mm-hmm. other species of insects and some spiders that can do this. <clears throat> and, you know, the way they can do this is due to the surface tension of water. So basically all water molecules are attracted to other water molecules. But since the top layer of molecules uh, in the pond or whatever doesn't have any other water molecules, water molecules above it they cling more tightly to the ones to the sides and below them and that creates the surface tension so it's just a little bit Mm -hmm. stronger on top it's it's a lot stronger when they do a belly flop right like a skin ouch (laughs) yeah that's why it hurts so much Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh, unlike us doing a belly flop animals that are small and lightweight enough can basically bounce off the surface if they are also adapted to have water repellent feet. So water striders, for example, have a lot of hairs on their legs and they're coated with a kind of a waxy substance, which repels the water and Mm -hmm. also traps a little bubble of air around their feet. So this in combination with the surface tension lets them them kind of glide along and not sink in. Okay. But what was this beetle doing and how was it doing it on the underside of the water? Yeah. So, uh, so Mr. Goulds captured the beetle. believe and he was able to identify it as a water scavenger beetle which is in the family hydrophilidae okay. uh, they're they're pretty common hydrophilidae you say hydro yes. like water yes yeah water water loving something like that mm-hmm. yeah they're pretty widespread family of water beetles um yeah. but uh they are known to carry an air bubble with them which is a, actually a pretty common behavior in aquatic insects can, right a lot of insects carry a bubble around with them that they use to breathe and for buoyancy. Mm-hmm. Convenient. It's like the bubblehead charm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so you can see there's a video he took. Uh, so you can see that the air bubble for this beetle is squeezed in between the insect's abdomen, basically its belly and the surface of the water. So scientists think that maybe this uh the force of the bubble helps keep the insect upside down and pressed up against the surface of the water because it's like lifting up to the surface yeah so it's kind of holding onto the bubble and it's lifting it up to the surface and he said that when he watched the beetle he could almost he could see the feet kind of poking up little miniature hills of water above the surface Oh, oh wow! Cool. So the opposite of like a water wow. spider. Yeah. 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 Huh. The so weird it's like pushing the water up. Yeah. So if you think about a water strider, it's kind of poking the water down a little bit. So yeah. this is just doing the same thing from the other side. So That's cool. crazy. Wow. Yeah. I wonder if water striders are super confused. Like, <laughs> what is, is, that, is that my shadow? What are you doing down there? I mean, I would be. Yeah. I would be very confused. <laughs> yeah. So this, he wrote this up in a paper that was published. 
But interestingly, when he was doing his literature review, he discovered that this ability had been mentioned in passing in the scientific literature, but no one had ever really investigated it before. And apparently this, this was fairly well known among aquatic beetle specialists that they can do this. Um, and they actually some just accepted. Yeah, they used it to they, they used it to collect beetles more easily. They would sort of stir up the bottom of the pond and then the beetles would come up to the surface and just oh, cool. hang out there and they would scoop them up. Oh. But no one right. had ever thought to write it up or investigate it more closely. Man, what, that's <laughs> awesome. That would be such a great, like, oh my gosh, how's nobody did this before me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so there are still some questions to be answered. Like, it would be yeah. interesting to find out exactly what parts of the beetle's body are water repellent. So if you think about the water strider having, uh, on the surface of the water, having water repellent feet, you might think mm -hmm. that this beetle would have to have feet that are attracted to water and the rest of its body would be water repellent so that it could hold the bubble. Oh, yeah. 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 Huh. Okay. Um, but... Could this beetle also work walk on the top surface of the water? Who knows? Uh, and, you know, potentially there could be some applications in robotics because uh, ro robotics researchers have created water strider-like robots. So you wonder if yeah. they could do it for That's fascinating. the other side. Reverse. Yeah, this seems more stealthy. For the the, like the upside under, down, underwater. I believe they call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what this is? This is like... A, a fancier version of having like a, a reed um yeah <laughs> like robin hood what style is this? like yeah yeah, yeah robin yeah. hood like breathing snorkel with snorkel, yeah. snorkel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it read snorkel okay. yeah i love exactly. that i love that where your example came from rachel is is robin hood <laughs> thank you <laughs> instead of a snorkel um what i'm visualizing it's is did you guys, when you were younger, you had those boogie boards, and I always would try and force them under. I try and get All on the top time. of it, uh, won't go, yeah. but it's like yeah. impossible. So you're like you wrapped around with... it, and then it yeah. flips, and then you are upside down <laughs> holding onto this boogie board. I'm mm -hmm. imagining that's how the beetle is with this bubble. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an apt description, Laura. <laughs> so that was my uh, yeah. relatively short and sweet topic for cool. you this week. Nice. Thanks awesome. So much. Thank you, Victoria. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. been super fun to have you on as a guest, Laura. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks thank for inviting you. me. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, it's been great. Yeah, yeah. I love getting to share my weird nature stuff with other fellow weird nature lovers. Like, this <laughs> yes. is where it's at. That's <laughs> us. Weird nature lovers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for coming or er, listening, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.